As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful, Herbal Face Food, for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome. 
Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me our third try, mm-hmm. Rebecca Wolf, author. She is a really becoming a dear friend. She's a writer, blogger, written for outlets such as the New York Times, Time Magazine, Glamour, New York Magazine, some of the faves. But the book that you wrote that won my heart is called All of This, and it is just out uh, this August of 2022. It is such an honor to talk to you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we made it work today. <laughs> Finally. I know. We did it. I know. We had a couple of hiccups. And I have in front of me the uncorrected proof of your book with one, two, three, four, five, twelve post-its. <laughs> Marking the pages that I would like to talk about, I want to start with uh, the fact that this is a memoir of death and desire. This is a discussion of realizing that you needed to leave your husband, only to find out that, I don't know, within a couple of weeks of that realization, that he was terminally ill. Yes. And how that played out. It was riveting. I read it in about 36 hours, our listener. Um, But my first note comes on one of the very first pages. And you're going to hear me turning pages because that's what I do. Hmm. I don't like to look at my screen. Um, Part one. Sometimes death is the beginning of things. It's a quote from Erica Jong. Um, I really hesitated to read the book because chapter one is called Cancer Season. Mm. I almost put it down. I don't know why I actually kept reading. I was like, no, no more cancer. No more cancer. My best friend has it. I can't. And then I just kept reading because of the way you write. It was just so beautiful. Um, Rebecca, I want to thank you for the courage that you had to write this book. And I want to start with the sort of a little bit of a context Mm. for our listener who might not have read the book yet. Tell us a little bit about how this all sort of played out for you, and then I'm going to take us into the next phase. Yeah, of course. Um, First of all, I've been writing about my life for my whole life. I started writing in my teens um, for a book series in the 90s, and have been writing pretty much since age 15 about my experiences. So as a teenage girl, as a young woman, as a new mother... I had a blog for many years called Girls Gone Child when I wrote about um, what it was like to sort of become an unexpected mother in my early 20s. Um, I went on to write about my family, my children, but mostly my own experiences as they applied to marriage, motherhood, womanhood, coming of age. Um, So I've always been writing, you know, I've always been a memoirist essentially. So this book, for me, was really a continuation of me telling my story. But unlike what I had previously written about, this one was sort of unfiltered, uncensored. It felt necessary, even urgent, to sort of talk about all of the things that I knew I wasn't supposed to talk about, um, that I had sort of omitted from earlier writing. Not to say that I wasn't writing honestly about my experience, but I was writing about a very specific honest experience within a larger experience. I use sort of the analogy of, you know, if I'm taking photographs inside a room, you know, you can frame the shot. So you see Mm -hmm. the part of the room that's beautiful. It's clean. It's not full of dust bunnies, you know, crap in the corner. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what I did mostly, you know, I tried to write as honestly as possible about the tricky mess, messy stuff too. But there was a lot of stuff that I cropped. Um, I think there's a lot that we all crop when it comes to telling our stories um, for an audience. You know, we're trying to protect our families. We're trying to protect our partners. We're trying to protect men. Um, I think women do that without even realizing we're doing that. Um, And for me, you know, I sat down to write this book and I had a lot of feelings that I did not feel like I could publicly share, let alone admit to myself. And as I was writing this book, it became increasingly clear to me that the only way I could tell the story was to write about all of the things in the room that I didn't necessarily want to focus on. I had to uncrop the image and take in, you know, the whole scene for better and for worse. And, and that's, that's what I did. Let's go to one of the corners of the room. <laughs> Page 21. 
at least in the proof. I'm not sure if this is the same paging uh, in the final, but here we are. Money, they say, is the number one cause for divorce. But for us, it was more about the inequity, the imbalance, what happens when one person is able to follow her dreams and the other is not. Hal was a musician who came to Los Angeles to perform and to entertain, to be a star. Instead, he got a girl he barely knew, that would be you, pregnant, and had to get a day job with benefits. And although he climbed the ladder from production assistant to producer, it was never the work that he wanted to do. And every night over dinner, I would hear about it, the job he took for the family. He would come home angry and take it out on me, on all of us. In the beginning, when we were both struggling equally, we were okay. And I guess I just assumed if we could make it with nothing, we would always be able to make it. Just like our parents and our friends and all the many married people in our lives. If they could stay together for the kids, so could we. I was conditioned to believe that as a mother who placed her children's worth above all else, I was doing them a favor. By martyring myself, I was giving my kids the ultimate gift, my happiness, in exchange for theirs. And this is the line where I'll stop, just grab my heart. Our marriage was a tourniquet. <laughs> I didn't think we could live without. I'd convinced myself that loss of circulation in my limbs was a small price to pay, that my options were to bleed out or lose the feeling in my legs. I had become proficient in the poetry of acceptance. Hmm. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah, I mean, look, I I think that, you know, the passage that you just read is an extremely common uh, feeling and experience. I know it is for a lot of women I know that I've talked to over the years. I think, you know, we... I don't even think we realize we're doing this, but I think it's like we're so used to making sure there's peace, that it's our job to sort of be there to... You know, they hear the word sacrifice a lot and compromise and, you know, you have to make it work and you want to create a safe place for your children, for your family. And we think that it's safer to stick it out. And there's all these words and they're so like aggressive, like we fight, we stuck it out, we made it work. It's like there's so much effort in these phrases that don't take under consideration what we're missing, what we're losing, the parts of ourselves that we're denying and I think for me, I felt like as a mother, it was my role to deny myself certain feelings and to, you know, do everything I could to make sure everyone else felt seen, everyone else felt taken care of, everyone else felt listened to. I was receiving all this energy and I didn't even know how to feel for my own, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I became a mother so young. I was still a kid. I was 23 years old. I didn't know myself. And suddenly, you know... I'm a mom and a wife and all of these things that just the word wife, the word mother, like the societal expectations held in those words. Um, you know, I mean, you don't have a lot of examples of anything other than, you know, my parents are still married. I had very few friends who were divorced, um, very few friends at the time who were single mothers. I was operating sort of in this very heteronormative, patriarchal um, environment, I really didn't know how to get out of that. It felt like this is just what happens. This is what I'm supposed to do now as a woman and a mother. Um, I'm just supposed to feel for everyone but myself. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, over the years, I started to find ways to escape, um, to escape my marriage, to escape my unhappiness. Um but for the most part in my head, and I remember thinking this like all the time, like as soon as my kids are grown up, we can split up. As soon as my kids are out of the house, we can get a divorce. Um, right. And that was like 10 years, 12 years from now, we'll be able to do this thing. And for 12 years, I'm just going to be able to sort of live in this sort of weird purgatorial space where I'm miserable. But, you know, hey, it's worth it if everyone else is happy. And I think I... <laughs> nobody else was happy is the thing like spoiler alert my husband mm -hmm. wasn't happy my kids weren't happy because they were around people who were miserable who were fighting all the time and somehow I couldn't see that at the time or I was in denial or again I was only looking at one part of the room 
you know, I was writing about my life. It was like, we'd have a really good day. And I would write about that. I would take pictures of these beautiful, you know, adventures we would have around town. And I tried to live within those moments, which were ephemeral and fleeting. And when they were over, I was left with, you know, the rest of the room. Right. A little later in the book, you talk about realizing that it isn't brave to model the acceptance of toxic relationships to one's children. And I'm hopeful that one listener that we have here right now might benefit from hearing that. You had to become a mother again. He very quickly degenerated. And you um, mark this by memorizing the complex maze that is Cedars-Sinai in L.A. Mm. Um, You relay this sort of moment in time with this one paragraph that I noted for myself that really gives the whole picture. I am sniffling, he spits. Ask for water, which I bring with me everywhere. Water and juice and snacks in case he wants to eat. Straws so he can drink. Dixie cups. I carry medicine and an ice pack to keep everything cold. I carry barf bags and face masks and his copy of Still the Mind by Alan Watts. I'm a new mom again. And I have learned the hard way to remember to bring everything with me when we leave the house. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, anyone who is taking care of someone while they're dying, who's also taking care of, you know, children when they're babies knows that there's really not a lot of difference between the two. It really felt that way for me. Um, like you said, he died four months after he was diagnosed. It was a very steep decline and, Soon after his diagnosis, he was essentially needing to be caretaken full-time. You know, I I always kind of go back, maybe even to a fault, to sort of the circular nature of relationships and love and um, life. And, you know, we got together. We married because of an unplanned pregnancy, and our marriage ended because of an unplanned death. And... So much of the way our relationship, like the beginning of our relationship looked like that. It was just with my son who was a newborn baby. And the end of our relationship, of course, is me taking care of my husband who felt like a newborn baby at the end. You know, for me, because we had such a tumultuous marriage, specifically the last two years, the last two years were really bad. You know, I knew that I wasn't going to make it those 10 years until the kids graduated college, um, two years before he got sick. And it was just me trying to get the, not even the nerve. It was like, I had to get to the place that I finally got to, which is if I don't leave this marriage, I'm going to die. Like I felt like I was, and I don't even mean die in a literal sense, but I felt, I didn't even know who I was anymore. I was completely, I was missing in order to live my life in order to save myself. I had to get out of the marriage. And I finally got to that place, you know, right before he got sick But it really was this sort of circular experience where I had to sort of go back and remember what I loved about him and remember what brought us together in the beginning and remember how to be a caretaker um, and how to love unconditionally, even when, you know, you want to just leave, which I think is very similar to the feelings of being a new mom. You know, you're overwhelmed. You love this person, but also you don't know what you're doing and are you doing it right? And, um, you're not sleeping at all. And it was so similar to that. I do like, I compared his death to giving birth. There's so many similarities there. Um, you know, my son was born in the same hospital where my husband died a floor apart. Um, there was very poetic in that way. Um, but trying to find the love, trying to, you know, be the best caretaker, the best wife I could be at the end when I wasn't a great wife. Um, he wasn't a great husband and I wasn't a great wife. And I, I also felt it was important to talk about that. This was a complicated relationship. We are complicated people. All, all marriages are complicated, all relationships, all deaths, all births. Yes. Um, yes. So, you know, exploring that to me was really important. On page 95, uh, I have tears in my eyes rereading it right now. Um, His eyes changed color at the end, you say, from hazel green to a deep blue. I was reminded of our newborn children and how their eyes were all the same until they were different. Death has a way of making even young men look old and brand new all at once, ancient, like featherless baby birds. 
A dead man lies on a bed in a room, and we are alone. Mm. I loved this man once, and then I hated him, and then I loved him, and then I hated him, and then I loved him, and then I hated him, and then I loved him again, and then he died. That was our love story. Like, holy <laughs> shit, dude. <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> this happened in 2018. Like, it feels so fresh to me. It feels so important that you told the story, because I know so many people who are losing people yeah. too young. Yeah. And it's like, okay, now we're having this conversation. We can have this conversation. And it's okay. And it is okay. And I want us to be able to have this conversation. And I, in grief, like, it is always fresh. Like, it was 2018, but oh my God, that was yesterday. Um, and that's the thing, too. Like, it's so interesting because my son, who is dealing with something completely separate from this, had Googled the stages of grief about something else he was grieving. And he was like, okay, I think I'm finally in stage five or whatever it was, stage five or stage six. I'm finally in the acceptance phase, whatever phase that is. And then about 20 minutes, he popped back in my room and he's like, never mind, I'm back at stage two. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. 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 There, yeah. It's not linear. It's not. And it's always going to be with us. I mean, I think, you know, we lose people young, especially because like I think not only just of how, but of people, of friends that I've lost, like, God, if they were alive, what would they be doing? What would the experience be like? Mm -hmm. When you lose a mm -hmm. partner specifically, like the hardest part for me is that he's missing what's happening with his children. Like he misses yeah. all the milestones. Like, <sighs> <sighs> like that's the stuff that really like, now I'm crying, but you know, my son's about to graduate and it's like all of the you know, the last, the milestones and the things, you know, I have this like guilt that, um, I'm the only one who's here. And also like not having another parent to look at and say, Oh my God, look at what we did. Like, look at our kids. They're amazing. Like I'm just, you know, yeah, having that yeah. conversation sort of with myself where it's like, wow, he did it. And, you know, I've been doing it by myself for four years. Mm -hmm. But it's mm -hmm. also, you know, they're his kids too. They're always going to be his kids. And like, that's never going to go away. You know, when someone dies young, they don't ever get to be a grandparent or they never get to see their kids finish high school or our kids were so young. I mean, my youngest were just turned seven when he died. You don't even really remember him. So it's always like grief is so fluid. It doesn't just go away. And you know, it's like <laughs> when you were talking and you started to cry, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And I'm always like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine until I'm not. That's sort of the thing too. I was just talking to a neighbor. My neighbor just lost his partner 45 years and we run into each other all the time. And it almost feels like this kismet thing because we always talk about grief. And he said to me, he's like, you know, I was just at the gym and I was working out and I burst into tears and it just came out of nowhere. And I was trying to hide it from everyone because I was so embarrassed. And then I thought, why do I do this? Why do we feel like we have to apologize for grieving, for crying, for having the most natural emotion? And we feel like we have to apologize for it. Like, I know I heard you do it. I did it just now. He did it at the gym. Mm -hmm. We're apologizing for our humanity. And I feel like this is such a bigger issue with everything. This like need to sort of repress and hide and bury these feelings that we're having, regardless of what they are, whether they're sadness or anger or disappointment or resentment or joy or relief. And for me, I had all of those feelings when he died. I was elated in so many ways because I didn't want to be with him anymore. And that feeling was real and it was absolutely justifiable. Like I had every right to have that feeling in the same way I had every right to be, you know, crying in the hallway. You talk about grief on page 124 in a way that blew my mind. Grief is nonlinear. It's sneaky and sharp like a serial killer in a movie where there's no warning, no suspenseful music, no screeching of violins. And one night when you think you're fine and everything is fine and oh, look at me living my life, thriving even, it's like boom. Then suddenly you're on the floor with no memory of how you got there. Grief put a roofie in your drink and now the room is spinning. Grief is supposed to be a Mack truck, but really, it's a Prius with its lights off. 
no way to know it's coming until you're under its wheels. In those first weeks after Hal's death, I learned to welcome the tread. I knew the undoing always led to more heightened awareness, like being possessed by my own knowing. An exorcism I must have forgotten I signed up for. Like, girl, I know you're in Trader Joe's trying to decide which pasta to buy, but hear me out. You need this. And this is the line that nailed me. There is something godlike about these moments of release, the irrefutable power of a seizure-like breakdown that ends in holy silence, the falling apart, a catalyst for rearrangement. Yeah. I can't even. I can't even. My mom died almost seven years ago, and I read this, and I was like, oh, that explains it. Yeah. Like, that puts words to all of those episodes. Yeah, well, it's so interesting. I don't know if this is the same for you, but I do feel like I will have a breakdown and then I'll just stop. It's like a sort of a storm, you know, where you have like a torrential downpour and then it just sort of goes away. And that to me feels so specific to like my grief response. It's like, this is a storm. I have to like let it wash through me and then I'm going to be on the other side of it and I'm going to be like, okay, back to business. Like I've had to pull over before because I just burst into tears you know, on the road, you know, I'm crying. And I wrote a sort of a scene in, in this book about that, about having sort of a full on panic attack in my car and then it's over. And then you sort of like, look around, like, is that it? Am I done? Is the storm passed? Can I get back on the road? Um, yeah. And then, you know, 15 miles down the road, you have another one. It does feel godlike because it does come out of nowhere and it is coming from some sort of divine place of knowing or recognizing, you know, we talk about triggers. What is that? What is a trigger? Why are we triggered? Where does that come from? Where in our bodies are we suddenly feeling like this isn't right or this is right or, oh, I'm going to cry now. (laughs) You know, it comes from this place that I think we don't even, we're not even cognizant of, right? Like there's like these little corners of our bodies that are holding on to things. And then, whoops, one exposed wire, like someone just nudged that. And then it's like, you know, there's an overflow, but it does feel powerful and it does feel godlike and it does feel divine. I, I have two other things that I want to talk about. And I'm kind of afraid to talk about this one, but I think it's important. Right around page 136, we get into a conversation around the patriarchy and sexual assault. So I want to just let our listener know that we are about to get into a very triggering story if you've been through sexual assault and are still working through it. So I want you to know that that's about to happen. You go into a whole conversation about how many times you have sort of defended men, Mm. uh, even against your own best interests, quote, answering doorbells at 4 a.m. saying, sure, but make it quick. (laughs) approving the friend request of a former friend when one night during a movie decided to pin you down on your own couch, jerk off on your face, and then never speak to you again after that. But still, he proceeded to comment on your post while your husband was dying. Just another nice guy offering support. Mm. And you say, if I had a dollar for all the times I should have told them to fuck off, but didn't want to be a bitch... All the times I apologized for the blood, for the mess, for my womanness. Suddenly, all I could think about was that our marriage, our family, our every joy was built on a foundation of rape culture, of patriarchy, and a complete disregard for my own body, my feelings, and future. I was a child who didn't know any better, and he was a dude, so neither did he. And you go on to say that you became obsessed with the cultural conversation that was happening around you. Of course, at that time, it was the Me Too craziness. And, um, you know, how could you possibly tell your story without hurting the people you love? It's impossible. You cannot tell the truth without hurting people. You can't. And you can't. No. And I would love to talk to you about this because I think it's a really important conversation for many of us who really never kind of told the story of the rape or the date rape or the assault that we experienced yeah uh and how woven it is into our history i mean you know it was happening within my own marriage it's so interesting because i remember when the first time i wrote about rape was pre me too but it was right around the time kesha i don't know if you remember but kesha had come out with her story 
I do remember that actually. Yeah. And it really sort of was the first time I was able to like say out loud what had happened to me. And I was like the power of one woman sharing her story and not only like the courage it gave me to share mine, but just the recognition. (laughs) I didn't even really know that I had experienced a trauma until someone else started talking about theirs. And I think that to me, the power in our stories, specifically as women who've gone through, whether it's sexual trauma or any sort of trauma that they can't talk about because they're going to hurt men, Mm. was really kind of blew me open. And then what happened is I started questioning everything within my marriage, before my marriage, um, what I had enabled because I was experiencing sexual assault within my marriage. Did I enable it? Maybe, kind of. There's a lot of nuance in this conversation and which is why, you know, I think we have a really hard time with it. I don't think it's black and white, but I was experiencing, you know, that within my marriage and I started seeing it sort of everywhere. I mean, I got pregnant because he had refused to wear a condom. Um, Mm. He refused to get a vasectomy. Um, So I had this horrible IUD that made me bleed out every month. You know, all the different ways I had justified his body, his pleasure, his needs above mine without even really thinking about it. Like just as, oh, yeah, well, it's his body, his choice. So, of course, I shouldn't force him to get a vasectomy. But I was, meanwhile, (laughs) suffering. And if the roles were reversed, holy shit, there's no fucking way I would have not gotten a procedure, you know, been in and out of the hospital for a day so that he wasn't suffering. Like, I was going out of my way to make him feel good, to make him feel safe, heard, listened to, willing to be the punching bag when he was angry, not physically, but emotionally. And realizing how much I had given not only to him, but to other men, putting them first, not even knowing what I was into sexually. I mean, you read the part about the guy in the couch and how he ended up commenting, you know, on my post. The fact that he thought that he felt that he could, is that his fault or is it the fault of the greater system of the fact that we just, we don't call it out. We don't say anything. Did he even know he did anything wrong? I can't even imagine like doing something so horrific to somebody and then just casually being like, oh my God, I hope you're okay. Like checking in, you know? Ugh, so God. it's like, this is not specific to men. This is specific to our culture. This is. Well, the problem is they're being fed these images of power and sexiness that are completely fucked, yes. for lack of a better word. Yes. And I'm very committed to making sure that my teenager understands that pornography is not real. Yeah. Well, and, and that's part of the conversation, too. What is real? What is a real yeah. sexual experience like? And that should be part of our sex yep. education. Pleasure should be part yes. of our sex education. We should be teaching yes. about female yes. pleasure and desire and the fact that most women don't even orgasm from penetration like these should be conversations we're having and we don't so we let you know the culture raise our children raise our sons raise us it was interesting a little later in the book for the first time in your life you were able to actually really let go and have a relationship and an intimate interaction with this one person jake um where you were finally able to see that that's oh that's what it's about And then that led you into a really interesting, I circled and underlined a lot, this page, it's 183 in the proof. Love's, much like grief, is so often complicated by outsiders' expectations. Is that why so many of us perform, pretend we're not dating when we are, say that we're grieving when we're not? I mean, is this why my social circle shrank after Hal died, even after everyone was so lovely and caring and generous? Why is it that the very community which rallied around us for months and months became the same people I was afraid to be truthful with? Mm. Like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. And it's so much of it too comes from our own, you know, we have expectations for other people's expectations too. I think a lot of our fear often doesn't even come from the fact that we're projecting our own either self-judgment 
on other people assuming they'll judge us because, you know, we would possibly judge someone for doing something. There was a moment, I didn't write about this in my book. It was in an earlier draft, but it was this incredible moment where I was at a friend's birthday dinner soon after Hal died. It was the first person I ever slept with after he died. It was pretty soon after he died though. And I was keeping it a secret because I didn't want to be judged. I was afraid of being judged. Even by people who loved me, who I loved, I just didn't, it's like I was afraid. I, it was a very too soon type of situation. I just put too soon in like finger quotes because I don't believe that anything is too soon. There's no such thing as too right. soon, um, right. I believe. And there was a, a woman at the table who had recently gone through a divorce and she was telling me that she was like dating somebody new and it was really exciting. And she'd been in this marriage for 25 years and was like, oh my God, that's so amazing to be on the other side of that. And I kind of slipped out that I was having the same experience. Um, I barely knew her and she kind of like grabbed my hand and she's like, wait, tell me more. And we had this moment where we were just like going back and forth with our stories. And she was absolutely like holding space for me. And there was no judgment at all. We were relating. And then sort of the women at the table were like, suddenly I realized they were all listening in and everybody was sort of like watching us having this conversation. Judging you. Well, no, that was the thing. They were, I, they were just sort of watching. Right. And then I finally was like, okay, I guess I'm going to out myself after dinner. I'm going to, you know, meet up with this guy and everyone was like, okay, okay. And then, you know, we kind of didn't talk about it anymore. It went back to the conversation and I didn't know how people felt. I wasn't sure, you know, Mm -hmm. it was sort of this like collective, Mm -hmm. like, okay. And when it came time to go, I stood up because I was the first person to leave the dinner and I stood up and they all stood up with me and applauded and started like <gasps> hooting, like, yeah, oh. woo, like cat calling me as I walked out the door and I wow. burst into tears because <laughs> wow. half of these women, I didn't even know, right? Half of them yes. I did. You know, one of them was obviously a very close friend, but I was like, holy shit, Yes, they saw me, they heard me, they supported me. And that was like such a turning point for me where I was like, you know what? I think actually we can give each other more credit. I think, you know, you, we can. I wish that was in the book. (laughs) Damn, damn it. I know. I'm going to have to put it somewhere else. It was in a part that didn't, I don't, you know, I don't even remember why I ended up cutting that out, but it's actually kind of nice to have stories I can tell. That aren't in the book. Of course, that aren't. Um, Yes, of course, of course. Because that was a real, you know, moment for me. I also wanted to talk about your own mom Mm -hmm. and how she treated you with so much respect. This is the first page of chapter 16 for our listener, if you're interested in looking in the book. I included a large part of this uh, first page of the chapter in a parenting course, an audio parenting course that I'm coming out with later this fall. Yeah. um, I feel like it's just so important. You went through a whole description of how she would always answer every question of yours with transparency and sort of a shamelessness that almost embarrassed you, but she actually never made you feel like you were anything other than normal. You say, quote, if I came to her with bloodstains on my sheets, she shrugged and wrapped them up in her arms. Nothing to see here. Wink, wink. Move right along. She never once questioned the padded bras you pulled off the sale racks at Target and threw in the cart, nor did she shame your need to apply Max Spanish Fly lipstick from the front seat of her minivan on your first day of seventh grade. So many different things that she just respected your choices. Mm. And I really, for months, tried to figure out how to incorporate this into this course. And I think I did it with real a flair. Oh, and I'm, I'm excited. So glad. Oh, and I love that. You're quoted. You're oh, quoted thank in the you. course. But here's the sentence for our listener. She, like all mothers of girls, was given a choice. She could either stifle or support her daughter. To be either her defendant or prosecutor under the laws of patriarchy, a system so ingrained that it was impossible not to stumble on one of its tripwires. My mother understood that girls became women, that being her daughter was only part of my story, just like being my mother was only part of hers. Mm it gives me the chills every time and i i took this for my kid too like i could either stifle or support him Mm. he could totally screw up yeah and i could stifle or support him these words have just Mm. they follow me around it's so beautiful on a day-to-day basis i cannot i'll never be able to thank you enough for this 
You're going to make me cry. Truly. Thank you. Sorry. No. This I, was big. This I just part. apologize. I don't want to apologize. I'm taking back my apology. Me too. I'm taking yeah, my Yeah, we're not apologizing also. for having feelings. Yeah. You know, God it's damn. like she was so good at that and she still is so good at that. And I'm so grateful because that's something that I have taken from her into my own toolbox as a mother. And, you know, I have a 17 year old son. I have a daughter that turns 14 next week and twin 11 year olds. And, you know, we're in it, we're in the teens. And as you know, like there's a lot of choices that are made at this age and you know what, those are their choices and I'm there to support them. And I think, you know, for me, the most important thing a parent can do is to be shameless as a person in her own life and model that to her children and allow them to be too and unabashedly themselves and to let them fuck up and not to say anything. I mean, I always think like the padded bra thing was so interesting because I remember thinking, you know, super flat chested and they went way the other direction. I remember putting the padded bra in the cart thinking she was going to make a comment like, really? Like, you know, remember those giant padded bras that were just like, the whole thing was padding basically. (laughs) And her not saying anything. And that, like, I remember that. It's like one of my clearest memories because it was a moment where I knew that it was like, all right, I'm doing this thing. And she knew that I was doing this thing. That was was cool. Yeah. that's, That's cool. And I think, you know, it's really hard sometimes as parents not to project our own shit onto our kids, not to provide commentary. I even think it's such a struggle for parents not to try to fix everything. You know, my son was going through something this week and he messaged me and my response was, yeah, it sucks. I love you. Like, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to feel better or I'm not going to try to help you or pretend like I can. You're in it right now and it sucks. And I see you. And I think you know, seeing your children, validating them, meeting them where they are and not trying to fix everything all the time is also so important and something, you know, my mother was really good at and still is. Mm. Weird how fluid this interview has been. The segue and the next sort of reading that I wanted to do is on page 196, where you say, what if we all spoke truthfully about our feelings and experiences? What if we weren't afraid of being chastised for our humanity? What if we felt safe enough to open the parts of ourselves we have been culturally conditioned to keep closed, didn't have to call each other brave for saying the things we know to be true, and instead of protecting our families from knowing our pain, allowed them to understand what we risk by saying nothing. Mm. So many of us say nothing. We raise our daughters to say nothing, send the message to our sons that no matter what they do to us, we will say nothing. Mm. (sighs) I mean, yeah. I think a big part of me writing and publishing this book was saying, you know what? I'm going to say something. I'm going to tell the truth about my experience and it's going to upset people. And guess what? It has upset people. It has. But again, like if I can model to my children that telling their story, being honest about their experience, isn't a crime, that it's something that you should absolutely do and be proud of, then I've done my job. And even if that's to my own criticism, you know, if they want to grow up and write a tell-all about what a terrible mother I was. I support that too. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I want them to be able to speak honestly about their experiences and to feel like they can and to feel like they're in a world that will not turn their backs on them if they do that. Because it's like we just perpetuate. Nothing can ever change or be resolved if we continue the sort of culture of lying and protecting and hiding and This is probably a terrible example, but the other day I was like, oh my God, I'm growing a beard. Like I have hair on my face. Like I turned 40 and started getting hair on my face. And I was like, nobody's told me this. Nobody took me aside and was like, by the way, you're going to turn 40 and start growing hair on your face. And I was like, how have I gone through my life all these years and not known this is something that happens to me? And I was with a friend and she was like, oh yeah, I've been, I've been shaving my face. And, and she basically showed me how to shave my face. And I had this moment with her sort of in the bathroom 
where I was like, this is kind of this beautiful <laughs> sort of moment where we're, I'm being taught, like I was having this sort of full circle moment from being middle school and shaving my legs. And exactly like, what I was thinking yeah. about my friend Laura's house. And I was like <laughs> saying to her, I was like, why aren't we like openly talking about this? Why aren't there scenes in the same way there are scenes in movies where girls are shaving their legs for the first time, where middle-aged women are helping each other figure out how to shave. And it's just like, it's a stupid thing. There's so many things that we still don't feel like we can talk about. And it was actually this really, (laughs) this like really beautiful moment together. And I was like, this is it like right here. Like there's so much that we don't talk about still, you know, when it comes to getting older, when it comes to sex, when it comes to death, all of this, there's so many taboos that we're still unable to talk about. And I don't know. I just, I don't know if I went on a total tangent about beards, but (laughs) No, I actually really appreciated it. And it's totally true. There it is. Um, Sorry, and not sorry. Mm -hmm. I will say that what I wanted to point out sort of in closing, um, you say, it is an antiquated notion that one's children cannot handle whole truths. I believe they can if you raise them with it. I also believe that there is nothing in our stories to be ashamed of. Writing about our inner lives is an invitation for our children to grow up and do the same. Mm. Love is messy, and we should talk about the mess instead of putting it out of the frame. I think there is nothing to be ashamed of. I think that is like the great lesson, um, at least for me in the last four years, is there's nothing to be ashamed of. No feeling should be shamed. As long as we're not hurting other people, like actively hurting people, then the idea of shaming somebody for living her truth, for being happy, for exploring, for whatever that timetable is after somebody dies. You know, there's so many young widows in the last four years since Hal died who had the same experience where they felt ashamed to even want to have a relationship after their husbands died, to want to have sex, to want to do any of these things with their bodies. And I think about all the effort that's put into shame and fear and all the ways people, women specifically, keep themselves from their lives because they're afraid of being judged. They're afraid that they're doing the, quote, wrong thing when it's the right thing for them. We don't question authority enough, I think. We sort of just like kowtow to it or we allow these sort of rules that were written by people who do not have our best interests at heart to sort of define us. And there's so much life on the other side of that. And I just, I really want people to just to feel like they can live their lives, especially after going through, you know, a death of of someone close to them. Because I think too, like when you go through a death, you're reminded of the fact that you have this body and this life source and that it's finite and that you don't know how much longer you're going to have. And to keep yourself from living is like, ugh, that's the bigger tragedy because you have a life. I truly cannot, will never be able to thank you enough for the opening that this book provided in my own body and being in relationship with my child, relationship with James. Mm -hmm. It changed me viscerally. Thank you. Reading this. Yes. It's really an honor to have you on. I feel so much deep respect and admiration for the meanderings of your mind. Oh my God, you are such a gifted writer. I never say that. You are really gifted. Mm, Thank you. And I thank you. Thank you for this offering to the world. Thank you so much for this. You're amazing. I wish I could Mm. like reach through this device and like squeeze you. Oh, I just, I am. The I'm minute doing I get it. to Los Angeles, I know. I'm please coming. come to my arms. I'm, they're open for I will. you. <laughs> I will. You can bet on it. I promise you. The minute I get there, Ugh. I love you I love and you I thank too. you. Thank you so much for really. having me. And I want to give a big thanks to two people. The first is Louise Braverman, who was my co-counselor when I was 17 years old. So we're going back uh, 25 years. She is the one who works at Harper One who sent me this book knowing that I would freak out and love it. And the second person is Annabeth Gish. Mm. Annabeth, thank you for putting us together. We love you so much. Mm. It hurts Mm. inside. And when I get to Los Angeles, whenever that happens, the three of us are going out for such a beautiful meal. 
to just take each other in. I cannot wait. Yes. Thank you for being here, Rebecca. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me. So much love. So much love back. Bye, honey. Bye. AG1 for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.